So, but first, tonight's guest speaker. Natalie Stackhouse is passionate about engaging people to seek justice. She loves working alongside those who use their power, influence and voice on behalf of the vulnerable, marginalised and oppressed. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Natalie has used her capabilities in leadership, facilitation, strategic thinking, coaching, communication and public speaking in many contexts to inspire others towards self-leadership and increased influence and capacity. I became aware of Natalie's knowledge and enthusiasm around so-called greenism when I sat opposite her at a sustained dinner. And I made the mistake of saying, why should Christians care about the planet if everything's going to burn anyway? She shut me up that night and now I'm going to shut up again and request that you all shut up as well and listen to the tour de force that is Mrs. Natalie Stackhouse. I'm glad you mentioned that you chose the word greenism because it's a bit weird, isn't it? I did send Theo about 30 options, but I too like alliteration, so I kind of get it with the grapple with the greenism. So we're going to talk about these four things. What is greenism or environmentalism or sustainability or creation care or stewardship? Um, why it's been a polarizing issue for Christians and why God might want us to go greener or green and how to go greener, although I will defer some of the how to my amazing friends at Sustain who will get up and, and share a little bit after I go. So a little disclaimer, I am not an environmental scientist and I'm not a theologian. So my degree was in environmental biology 20 years ago, okay? So I'm sure science kind of self-corrects, so maybe I have zero input in knowledge into science anymore. Um, I'm hoping not because I am doing a nursing degree, so I'm banking on some of that anatomy and physiology not having changed next year. Um, so I did go to Bible school for one year after my environmental biology degree, and um, there Matt and I studied a little bit of theology, and since then I have studied permaculture and done countless seminars and conferences and different things, and I've joined or started various kind of eco-groups. Um, I continuously improve, right honey, our house and our garden um, to reduce waste, conserve energy, and produce food and beautiful flowers for friends when they're sick, which I love. Um, I have, on the occasion though, made my own tomato sauce, sourdough, I know, before COVID too. And I have made my own um, soap, which was, you know, so, but I've never had dreadlocks. So I don't know if I'm green enough, um, but I would consider myself passionate about God's people seeking justice, um, including environmental justice. And that's what tonight is about. So in this talk tonight, some of you, um, will we'll want more of one thing or what it, you wanted won't be covered at all. So you all have your own agendas of what you've come here for tonight. And if I were in my comfortable spot, I would be doing a facilitation and I'd be asking questions and getting you all to engage. But some, I can't do that because of Theo. So, and I've never been to grapple, but this is apparently the format. So um, we'll leave questions to the end. Um, and hopefully the questions will be about 
kind of the things that I'm talking about. But if there's anything that I don't understand or know about, and I think it's important, I'm going to defer to Peter and Mark, who are from Sustain, because they know more than I do. So do you want to advance, or should I advance? I'll advance. Ooh. So just to clear the air, some topics we won't be talking about today. We won't be talking about whether science is legitimate or sinful, because obviously math is always OK with Jesus, but science could be sin, maybe. Um, or sign. So, and we won't be talking about the science of climate change, and we won't be talking about evolution. So just the first thing about debating about science being anti-God or all that, that big issue. Science, in my opinion, is a wonderful way and a tool to worship God. It's like having a telescope or a microscope to see the wonder of God's creation. It enriches my faith and it doesn't reduce it. In my biology degree, many, many decades ago, or two, all of my teachers' lectures, bar one, did not have an atheistic evolutionary belief system that they shared or tried to force down my throat. One did, and he had a huge chip on his shoulder, and he was a religious about there not being a god and that evolution was god. And he even hated William Wilberforce. I mean, he was, a, he was a bitter dude. I mean, that's like the guy who got rid of slavery. So just to say that science is about discovering three things through the scientific method. It's not about disproving or proving God. It's about whether you can test a hypothesis using observation and experimentation. It's self-correcting. It doesn't hold absolute truth, although gravity is pretty absolute, we'd say by now. So, the science is self-correcting. So if you're saying scientists are wrong because something they said about COVID in March is not true anymore, just be aware that science is always learning with new data. And so that's just a really important thing to remember when it comes to this pandemic, okay? The science of climate change. All right, so humans' impact on the climate changing is based on over 40 years of data and analysis. And overwhelmingly, scientists believe that it is influenced by human in, um, involvement. I don't have time, and I don't have the degree, and I, I can't go through all that with you. I'm convinced, but you may not be. Take it to a book or a YouTube video or go, because we just cannot cover that tonight. So I'm just, I'm just going to talk about climate change, not whether we did it or it's a natural cycle. So this is the gateway to many Christians becoming anti-science. And there are many good books that deal with this issue, too. If your scientists that you believe in, the scientists or a couple scientists, have to arrive at a particular conclusion that, like, the world is three and a half thousand years old, then I would probably say that they're a nutritionist who works for McDonald's. So they, you have to start science with not knowing what you're trying to prove. You're not trying to prove something or not. Does that make sense? Cool. Okay. That's all I'm going to talk about young earthy stuff. Um, we want things to be neat and simple, black and white, right and wrong. But, thank you, Theo, that's why we have grapple, because there's so many jagged things. There's so many grays. There's so many things that have nuance and things that seem complex that people tell you is not complex. They're usually wrong. It actually is complex. And so walking the tension between science and belief in miracles or evolution and creation, to me, is a wonderful place of awe and mystery and surrender. And 
I'm okay with that. So let's go into some definitions. Um, so greenism, thanks Theo, or environmentalism, is a political and social ideology, and that's where we get hung up a bit, that seeks to protect the environment from degradation by human activity or sustainability, the quality of little or no damage to the environment, therefore able to continue for a long time, being sustainable, and stewardship is a, is a biblical worldview of stewardship. That's not right to use the word in the definition, sorry. It defined as utilizing and man managing all God's resources that he provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation, and I love that definition. So all good at those definitions, and they kind of will blur together, and you might have your own creation care or whatever word you use to define this. Is everyone good, good with that? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Before we go into the controversy with greenism, I want to give you a quick diagram that we talked about in my nursing class today about why behavior changes so, it is so hard. And um, we were talking about diet and exercise and all that stuff. But it was just really good to be reminded that we often just think people can change their actions and do the right thing, but their actions are based on how they feel about something, which are based on their thoughts and their beliefs. And so anytime we want to change something, we have to actually assume that we've got to deal with our beliefs and our thoughts about that thing first. And that's why a night like this can be so powerful, because you can change your thoughts and your mind about something. Our beliefs about God, our beliefs about ourselves, our beliefs about our purpose on earth, determine whether we're a tosser, a tosser, a tosser or a take three for the sea type of person. Would you agree? Because how I feel when I see rubbish on the ground in that moment is either, oh, that's sad, I'm thinking about the turtles, or, dash, she'd be right, mate. She loved when I try an Aussie accent. Thank you for the laughter. So our best place to start is in changing our beliefs. So we would agree that maybe theology is a good place to start? Yeah, yeah cool. All right, so before we do that, let's just talk about popping our environmental bubble or popping the very bad balloon. Balloons are bad. That's one thing you can take home. Balloons are bad. I'm sure you could add to this whenever you've talked to other people about your care for the planet. Um, environmentalism is pagan. It's from earth worship, pantheism. Humans can't imp impact nature. Global warming is a natural cycle. But shouldn't we focus on, you know, abortion or marriage or whatever that issue is, which is what Christians do and what we believe and what we fight for? Or shouldn't we only care about saving souls? I'm going to address the all it's going to burn one, the one that Theo, the reason why I'm here apparently. I had some great profound answer. I don't remember. but um, So two of them are really easy to knock off in some ways, I think. And one is the shouldn't we focus on saving souls or abortion or whatever that issue is. Um, you know, if, if you say you can only focus on one thing and you're very... Um, you've got low bandwidth for focusing on more than one thing, then that is okay. Like, that's your thing, abortion or saving lives and going out to proselytize every day. But most people can handle having more than one passion. And most people can actually, as they go, carry that appropriateness to each, each thing in their life and work on multiple goodnesses at their life. You don't say, like, I hate Brussels sprouts. And then the next day you say, I hate turnips, and somebody goes, no, you hate Brussels sprouts. 
you know that, that whole thing of like we can't focus on the environment if we care about saving souls. Another way that um, this kind of comes out is whataboutism. Has anyone heard this new whataboutism phrase? So it's like become this political tool where you say, so-and-so cheated on so-and-so. And then that person goes, well, you cheated on so-and-so. You cheated on so-and-so. So you're not addressing the topic. You're just actually deflecting and then saying, it's, it's basically saying, you know, you're ugly. Well, I know you are, but what am I? You know, it's, it's that childhood, childish thing that we do. So that whataboutism is one of my pet peeves in the way that people are dealing with issues on social media and politics at the moment. So the other thing I would just say is uh, when it comes to things like abortion or whatever other thing that you think Christians should fight against, just, I suppose, every decision that, a, that someone makes has environmental decisions in terms of their context and, in a sense, having a holistic view of where problems come from and what the cause of the problem is can, can lead you to think more globally about issues that are black and white like that. So in other words, if you want to decrease abortion, you might want to look at social services, you might want to look at uh, mental health support, you might want to look at um, a range of factors. So does that make sense? Okay. All right, the next one. This place we find ourselves in Christianity in this century, we are very much um, part of this big, long journey of uh, Christianity that has actually been really uh, influenced by, by Greek thought. And the um, dualism that says that physical things are not holy and they're not good, and spiritual things or mental things are good. And that dualism comes from um, Greek Platonic dualism. I love the word Platonic because it's like, which is Platonic? But this early sect of Gnosticism where P Christians actually went off course believing that was a no, that was, but basically saying they denied the divinity of Jesus, or the, the humanity of Jesus. It was flesh is too evil to have the Son of God in it. And so that hatred of the physical, that's kind of wrapped up in our disdain of our own bodies as well as the physical world around us. And then I think, therefore I am. It's all about our mind and what we can think in our mind rather than inhabiting our body. And so the incarnation, Emmanuel, is, just flies in the face of that, the body of Jesus. So it shows up by escapism. Um, you know, people who, if they're studying the Bible, it doesn't matter what they do with their body. They abuse their body. They um, don't treat it well, don't get exercise, don't sleep, don't eat well, because it's all about their mind. It is all about their spirit. So you've, we've got to be really careful and bring those two together because they're both good. It's the creation and the spirit coming together. He breathed on us and he said it was very good. Okay, we don't realize that this is kind of the air we breathe. Go to the next slide. And I feel very sheepish about this slide because <laughs> it's about N.T. Wright and I am just holding on for dear life with my fingernails when I kind of read N.T. Wright. My husband and his mentor are here, and they could get up and do a much better job of explaining this. But essentially, 
the NT Wright has given us awareness about this duality that informs our, oh, we're going to leave Earth because it's unholy, and we're going to go to heaven. And he gives us another way to think about it. And you guys, maybe this is no problem for you, but for me, I grew up on the dualistic kind of Christianity that it was all going to burn and we were going to go to heaven, that Theo obviously grew up on too. Um, <laughs> but N.T. Wright talks about a different way to look at it, and based on lots of study. So seeing, saying that the early Christians in the Jewish context saw heaven and earth as God's space and our space, like twin halves of a good creation. And in, rather than rescuing people from earth to go to heaven, the creator, God, would bring down heaven and earth together in a final act of new creation and completing the original creative purpose and heal and restore. And that's the New Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation. That we are going to share in his stewardship over a rescued and renewed creation. This creation will be redeemed and rescued. It won't be burned up and start afresh. And the example we have is Jesus. He could have had a new body, but he had the body that had the cut, had the gash. Downing Thomas, I mean, it's pretty graphic there. I love the medieval art. But um, that is our example. We are going to, Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection. And all of Corinthians, if you go to the next slide, 1 Corinthians talks about the resurrection and that we are the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits, and then we live in resurrection power. Listen to this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And then it says in Psalm, you renew the face of the earth. And I know there'll be questions and there'll be plenty of time afterward to talk more about this renewing versus burning up completely and starting afresh. But this is another way to look at it. And how would that inform you in terms of what you do now and how you walk through a forest. Not with disdain that this is not going to be here someday, but with joy that this is what we were created to do, walk through a forest, walk till the ground. It gives us a whole other experience, I hope you can see. Does God want us to be green? So I would just ask you, what is the greatest commandment? Shout it out, someone. It's not up there in its entirety, so this is a test to see if you actually know it. And yeah. And love others as you love yourself. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I'm going to go through these as being a steward of creation is loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving ourselves. How do you show someone that you love them? Let's say that you're courting somebody who really loves art. And you don't really like art. Do you go to the museum? Yes, you do. <laughs> what if someone painted you a picture and you really loved them? And that picture reminded you of them. Would you trash it? 
or would you cherish it? Does anyone have a parent or a grandparent who's died? Do you cherish the things that they've given you, the things that remind you of them? So why wouldn't we cherish the thing that God said he loves, that reflects him? Is it a slap to the face to not? Can you see that? You love the things that, that reflect their creativity, their personality, and the things they love. Let's delve into the first commandment. God loves his creation, and we are made in his image and reflect his glory in our image bearer, so we should love the creation. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, and he saw the whole thing, and he said, it's very good together. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that it is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Creation worships God. That's Nehemiah 9.6. He marvels in it instead of giving an answer to suffering. Does anyone like hate but also love Job? If you haven't read it lately, read it again. This is the time for Job. This is the time, this is the year. If there's ever a year, 2020 is the year for Job. He wants to know why. And God basically just goes, but have you seen? Have you seen what I've done? Have you seen the ends of the earth? Have you seen the gestation period of the mountain goat? I mean, the detail, the, the love, the, the, uh, he's, he's just wondering. He's, he's in awe of what he's created. Why wouldn't we be? This is the clincher for those people who say, well, what about, what about saving souls? Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. If we trash the planet, all those people who haven't heard of Jesus, what chance do they have to even get to this place? When you've got people in desperate poverty in urban situations where they've never climbed a tree or seen a patch of field or grass, what, they have that, like, we, we need creation to reflect God's glory so that people can find him. It's easy for us here. It is. We are so blessed and so privileged. So what does the word say about caring for creation? We know that God loves creation, and we're loving God by loving creation. But actually, God calls us to love creation. You can't read this, but I wanted to just put it up here for me to remind you. So the first one, obviously, that's pretty heavy, hey? Matt actually told me about that one. I did find it in my Googling search. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding for your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the earth, sorry, destroying the destroyers of the earth. The time has come to destroy the destroyers of the earth. That's pretty. Has anyone ever read that before? I hadn't. Thanks, Thea. Uh, um, and then God tells us to till the earth in Genesis and tend to it. In Numbers, he says, that you shall not pollute the land in which you live. Does that make sense? Has anyone ever trained a puppy? You're supposed to tie it up at night so, or put it in a kennel because so it, it won't soil where it's laying, right? That's how you train a dog to, to hold its bladder because we're not supposed to pollute the land we live. 
but we put everything away so we don't see it. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and all the fullness therein, the world and those who dwell. Jeremiah 2, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. That's Jeremiah 2, 7. And Leviticus 25, 23, the land shall not be said in perpetu, sorry, shall not be sold in perpetuity, that, I can't say that word, but you know what it says shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. I don't know how you feel when you go out to your backyard or your garden, but you know, you own it now, but do you ever think, this is not my land, it's gonna be someone else's land. And would that change the way you treat it in terms of burying plastic or using chemicals or whatever, because it actually is not gonna be yours forever. And in the biblical days, it was given to your children and children's children. The next one is, um, we've got the love God, now loving our neighbors. The poor, or poverty, is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. God, I don't think anyone would argue after reading even Jesus' words that God has a special place in his heart for the poor and the marginalized. And he stands with them, and he defends them, and he gets really ticked off when people mess with them and oppress them. That's one thing I've learned about internet, with International Justice Mission is that there's justice, and it's not always like easy and comfortable, but when people oppress the poor, God's with that in that justice. He's bringing that justice. Let me just read these two, and then I've got one more story here. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, so he will repay him for his deeds, Proverbs 19, 17. And if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart, how does God's love abide in him? So here we have the Lord being equated with the poor. When you lend, when you take care of the poor, you lend to the Lord. And then if you, God's love is in you when you take care of people who are in need. So what does that have to do with climate or environmentalism? Well, I read an article today in The Guardian that one, they're estimating that because of climate change in the next 50 years, sorry, 30 years, 1.3 billion people, that's a seventh of the planet, will be in places where there's so much food and water insecurity and, and there's so much war because of it that they will be essentially refugees and trying to look for another place to live. Now think about the impact on whatever your belief is about politics, you know, about our borders and letting refugees in, all of that, but 1.3 billion people will we'll basically have droughts or floods or um, storms to the point where they can't actually feed themselves and get the water they need. And you sure as heck would move you and your family and risk everything to move away from that situation. E-waste is another thing that's, that's part of that whole how are the poor related to the issues of environmentalism. We get our products designed often in developing worlds or countries, and then we use them, ship them here, and then we send them back to be recycled. And who does the recycling? If you dig a bit, it's usually kids or the very poor who are just shift, you know, shuffling through all the toxic waste. So we do have an issue where climate is going to impact the poor more than anyone else. If you think about 
a city with smog. I don't know how many of you were in Sydney in December last year, but the air pollution was worse than it was in, in any city in the world, worse than Delhi, worse than anywhere. So for a couple days I went down to work and I, I felt my eyes were stinging, I felt sick, um, I was crying, I just couldn't, I just was like, I understand what it's like to be a poor person in Delhi. Like this is, this is every day of their life, to feel this suffocated and scared, and yet that's normal to them. And it gave me such a, a different perspective. But in those cities that are like that, who's got the air conditioning? Who goes from their air-conditioned house to their air-conditioned car to their air-conditioned work and then to the air-conditioned gym? The rich do. Everyone else has to breathe air. So that even that discrepancy between the rich and the poor, the poor haven't contributed as much to the pollution as the rich have because they're not driving the cars, they're riding the bicycles. So do you see that the rich have privilege and the poor pay the consequence? I'm going to let that image sink in. Privilege is often invisible to those who have it. Try looking at the world from another perspective, listen to other people, and then reconsider. Social media and the news and TV has made it in our face. We see this stuff all the time and we get compassion fatigue because we just don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. But how do we seek environmental justice in a little way, daily, in our choices in fashion, in our habits, whether we travel or we don't travel, how, what kind of travel we do, in our generosity, sacrificial giving, in our convenience purchases, in our diet? How can we seek justice, not just for people that are within this country, but around the world, because all of our food, all of our furniture comes from all over the world. And the next one, we've talked about loving God, we've talked about loving our neighbors, and the mandate to love our neighbors, and the given is that we love ourselves. And I'll just be very brief on this, because it's too much to see, but essentially, there's some pretty nasty effects of pollution. Cancer rates, autoimmune, a lot of disease, happens because of water pollution and air pollution, soil contamination. Bees, 70% of the world's food crops rely on pollinators, which are being um, killed off, bees particularly in mass, because of um, pesticides and loss of habitat. So bees, without bees, we would lose 70% of the food that we produce. And 90% of the world's nutrition. So you can see this is a food security issue. And then if anyone has been pregnant or been around a pregnant woman or helps pregnant women, you know that there's a, a limit for how much tuna or salmon they should eat. And that's because of something called bioaccumulation. Mercury gets into the little plankton and then the little fish eat the plankton and the bigger fish eat that one. Anyway, it goes up to the food chain until you have halibut, tuna, bigger fish that we eat, and the amount of mercury is higher proportion. And so those are kind of things that, yeah, we have to love ourselves by dealing with these things. This is really a nice, comfortable talk so far, isn't it? Don't worry, we're gonna get, it's gonna get better. Okay, the next one. How can we sustain a greener life? I apologize for the acronym. I like acronyms. <laughs> But I had to get the R. The R was like, I was like, I gotta put the R in. So if you, if you wanna say, you can be a lifer. Like, I'm a, I'm a greenie for life. I'm a lifer. I don't know. 
or if you like say it quick, it's like liver, lifer, anyway, I'm sorry, but I had the R, the R, you'll, you'll be appreciative that the R is there. All right, so this, this is a disclaimer, this is not a blueprint for a green life, because that's between you and God. That's what you have in your hands, between your ears, in your education, with your privilege, that is your own journey. Uh, and I, we can give lots of suggestions and you can come to Sustain and you can jump onto some of the bandwagons that Sustain's already doing. But really, it's about um, you getting some framework for building your own blueprint for, for being more green. All right, so lamenting and repenting, because those kind of rhyme, and they kind of go together. Imagining possibilities, finding hope and joy, engaging our neighbors, communities, and leaders, and role models. So lament. When we are honest before God, we do know that things are not right. Lament gives voice to the realization. It is not analysis or blaming or problem solving. It is simply the gut level, unfiltering wailing when we see that things that we love and need are falling apart. Has anyone felt that in the last year? Has anyone felt a gut level grief? Yeah. I'll be honest, I could not stop crying at least three or four times a week between November and January. And it wasn't a agonizing cry. It was a deep cry, but it was also a, a holy cry. Like it was, I was, I felt, I felt devastated as I saw ash come out of the sky. And I thought about that being the carbon from a koala or a lorikeet or a tree. I was seeing the molecules of what was alive days before fall onto my car. And I was having trouble breathing. We couldn't see the sun. And yet there was, there was a sense of there are places, there are world heritage areas that have been devastated by these fires that I has, still haven't seen. I've only been in Australia for 19 years. And there's places that I'll never be able to see the way they were six months ago because it's gonna take 100 years to grow back, or if that. And there was a grief for what I haven't even seen. And it hit me that I love this country. In fact, I've been talking about getting a tattoo for the first time in my life, I mean, gosh because I really love Australia, and I love Australian wildlife, and I love black cockatoos. They're like pterodactyls. And I, I just, and that hit me like, I'm grieving, but it also shows me how much I love what I've lost or what I feel like I will lose. And that love and that loss are two sides of the same coin, and it's holy. Jesus wept, the shortest sentence in the Bible. And when I saw The Inconvenient Truth, however many years ago, I don't know if you've seen it, 10, 12 years ago, I went into my daughter's rooms and I cried because I was worried that they would never see a polar bear in, like as adults, they wouldn't be able to see polar bears in the wild. They'd only be in zoos looking hot. And, and that just made me cry. Jeremiah says, we take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard, 
Both the birds of the air and the animals have fled and are gone. Jeremiah 9, verses 10 to 12. By 2050, more than half of the world's marine species may face extinction. Sea levels might rise by eight feet, and there will be mass uh, extinctions, possibly. If, and there may not be any coral reefs left. Don't flippantly gloss over these facts and shrug off the guilt and the fear surrounding these realities. Let it sink in, because out of our feelings comes our action. If you feel fine, are you going to change anything? Probably not. They say nothing good comes from comfort zones. Let yourself feel the gravity of what it means to lose the global diversity of this planet. Christine Smith talks about lament being able to unlock real worship. She says, if the trauma being inflicted on creation does not bring us to tears, if we never break through denial and rational barriers to feel our hearts breaking, if we are not at times overwhelmed by grief, then we have not entered into honest worship. Lament is both difficult and necessary. In our worship and spirituality, we may find, may we find the courage to grieve. We've been reading through Nehemiah in Lectio 365, and what struck me deeply is that when Nehemiah found out about Jerusalem and the walls being broken, he cried out, he cried and wept and prayed for three days. I mean, we are so much like, chin up, it's gonna be all right, it's all gonna work out for the best. The Christian F word, you'll be fine. But you know what, three days. We feel bad if we grieve for an hour. We feel bad telling people that someone we love just died because we don't wanna make them feel uncomfortable. We're really messed up. We gotta go back to the Bible. Then you had a lament, and it had a good purpose. So he lamented for three days, and then he prayed, God, give me the courage to talk to the king. And he went to the king, and he was, was sad. And the king said, why do you look so sad? You've never looked sad before. And he said, why could I not be sad? And then he, he stopped, and he said, God, help me for the next sentence. And then he asked, and then he was sent to go and repair the walls. So there is something holy about that rendering of our, of our hearts and of our spirits. So the next one, the repenting comes after the lament. Lord, search me. And then Nehemiah does this. I'm sorry, Lord, for what we've done, that we've turned from you. Search me, Lord, David says, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. All right, second one. So we've got lament. We're going to pray a prayer at the end of lament that will help us do that collectively. But now we've got to imagine the possibility. Someone said to me once, you're so good at pointing out the problem, but how can you be a part of the solution if you can't imagine it, if you can't talk about it? So we actually have to work toward a future, but we have to engage our God-given imagination to what it could be. What could that new Jerusalem look like? And what could be my part? What little brick am I gonna put in this city when the rivers run clear and there's no sun and there's trees? Shut your eyes for a minute and imagine this. I'm gonna read this scripture over you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you can imagine that, doesn't that give you hope that nature will be a part of God's kingdom when it comes? These two examples, one's an Aussie invention, the sea bin, to clear up pollution. I know that they've been using those a little bit in the um, Yarra River in Melbourne. And then this is edible cutlery. So those are things that are inventions. They didn't, those people didn't invent those inventions because they were so worried about the problem. They, they saw the problem, and then they saw a solution. So we can't get stuck in the problem. It has its purpose, but we have to move on and use our imagination to imagine a solution and how we can be a part of that solution. Just a quick little thing about plastic in the ocean. Good news is that um, within the, I think it, uh, last year in November, the UK government agreed to double the aid to develop pl recycling plastic in developing countries from three to six million, and that's gonna go to Ghana and Bangladesh to combat plastic getting into the waterways. And they've also doubled the tier Australia or the tier fund um, through Pakistan to develop recycling. So these are solutions that people are pushing for within a government level that makes a huge impact. Okay, this is the thing about the brick. Sorry, got to it too soon. Imagine our good work will be completed and redeemed. So dear family, 1 Corinthians 15, be firmly unshakable, always full to overflowing with the Lord's work. In the Lord, as you know, the work you're doing will not be worthless. Our work of justice, of art, of beauty, kindness, worship, it matters. And it will be a part. It will last. It will be perfected, but it will last. N.T. Wright says, I have no idea precisely what this means. I do not know how the painting that the artist paints today in prayer and wisdom will find a place in God's new world. I don't know how my planting a tree today will relate to the wonderful trees that will be in God's recreated world. I don't know how my work for justice for the poor will reappear in that new world, but it will. So take courage. The next one is we have to find and hold on to hope. My daughter Naomi is doing, just down there, she's doing an advanced science degree. And one of her courses this term, this semester, is called environmental ethics. And she has had this awesome aha moment reading this um, article called Nero's Fiddle by Andrew Fiala, who's not, uh, probably not a Christian, right? He says, this shows that the very real danger we will confront as the ecological crisis grows is this. At some point, a strategy of despair and selfishness will become the only reasonable option. In this way, believing the crisis is unsolvable may in fact contribute to its becoming so. Have you ever heard of over-analysis leads to paralysis? If we feel like we can't do anything about it, we don't. We don't even try. We need to have hope. And so the world doesn't have hope of the New Jerusalem, but we do. So we have to be light. We have to hold on to hope and we have to give hope because we have it. Finding joy to delight and sustain us. For me, Things like this can make me have hope. Um, the smell of a baby can make me have hope. Planting something and then seeing a week later that it's grown gives me hope. But amazing food from God's garden gives me hope. 
So we accept this as a gift from God, right? It's not like Fred of Frogs, right? If I put Fred of Frogs, you'd be like, not really God, but this is God, right? Okay, maybe like red, red, what are the red things called? Redskins. Maybe Fred of Frog is kind of like from God. So imagine the richness of your delight in this Mandarin if you had played a small part or were able to be mindful and knowledgeable about all the processes and all the orga or organisms. Whoops. <laughs> A little bit comic relief for you. Um, <laughs> all the incredible systems and organisms that of creation that shush, shush, you in the corner. <laughs> oh no, it's all gonna come undone. All the things that brought about this mandarin, this experience of you about to peel, you know, you peel the mandarin and it like squirts a little bit at you. Just imagine that. Shut your eyes a sec. Imagine that mandarin, and I'm sorry, I was gonna get one for each table, but I didn't think of it until five minutes before we started. The seed that held the energy and the blueprint of the tree in it, going into the soil, needing the warmth and the sunlight to sprout. The first leaves pushing through the soil that turn the sunlight into energy that allows the roots to go down deeper and the stem to shoot up higher. The bacteria and the fungi in the soil, which allows the microscopic filaments of the roots to absorb minerals and nutrients. The arteries and veins, or the xylem and phloem, if you're a nerd, um, of the now strong tree, which draws the water from the earth to the top of the branches and brings sugar that has been made from oxygen and sunlight down to the roots. The bee, which pollinates the flower, and then the fruit, that forms juicy and bright, essentially enticing you to eat. And then you eat and you scatter the seed someplace further away from the tree. You eat it and take delight. You throw the peel onto the ground and the bacteria and fungi create a new system, a new cycle to make it into fertilizer for the next seed. So you can open your eyes. If you thought about the soil that has to be healthy, the air that has to be healthy to make the glucose, the bee that has to be healthy to pollinate that, that flower, and the sunlight that has to penetrate the sky and not be covered in smoke and smog to be able to make photosynthesis, you would enjoy that mandarin more, wouldn't you? And if you had planted the seed or watered the tree, so do you see how enjoying and understanding the complexity, we are so fragmented from from the real process of life. We get something wrapped in plastic, we put it in plastic, and we put it away. We only are here in this consumption place. But the process is where God, where that worship can come from. For me, I can lose myself in the wonder of creation, on a hike, or in the garden. Awe and wonder help us to slow down, like that song said, to enjoy the gifts of God. And they are gifts. The gifts of God help us to starve our cravings for more and better and faster and all the errs to keep up with the Joneses. When we enjoy the free gifts, we crave the, the, not, the expensive gifts more. Expensive for us and expensive for the earth. If we don't find our joy in creation, and I don't know about you, but that song, Billions, if you shut your eyes and listen to that song, Billions, and you imagine all the times you've been in nature, all of the times from when you were a little kid all the way to yesterday, if 
you imagine all the times that you've been in awe of nature, it's incredible what God has given us in this creation, and it helps you to really worship Him through that song. But if we don't take that time to be in nature, how can we ever expect our children to value it? How can we ever expect our children to fight for it? Our very survival depends on this. So I'll, I'll leave it here. Engage. Engage with our neighbors, our communities, our leaders. It can mean educating yourself and making lifestyle changes, like going vegetarian or vegan or eating local. It could mean marching and advocating for better climate policies. The UK, if you want to get some inspiring Christians who fight for climate change, the UK doesn't have any hiccups and, and barriers when it comes to their theology. There's a lot of great stuff happening in the UK. N.T. Wright is one of them. I mean, that helps. Um, getting in a community garden. And I'm not going to tell you how to do this, but Sustain will have some great ideas. So role models and support. I'll just go through this really quickly. Tim Costello, as all Bible-reading Christians should be greenies because creation carries the imprint of the maker. Creation care is a fundamental building block of Christian faith, so it is incumbent on all Christians to say we have to take this global warming seriously. Anna Jane Joyner, she's an Episcopalian, a climate activist. She's the daughter of a megachurch, anti-climate, right stuff, conservative. She basically says, the core narrative I use is stewardship. This is to reach or talk to evangelical conservative Christians who don't believe in environmentalism. We're charged to care for and protect the land, God's creation, and use these amazing gifts that God gave us. It's good to find people who share your faith and your convictions. Joe Knight is from Tier Australia, and there's a video, but I've run out of time, so I would click on this link, go to Tier Australia, and find this. Um, I can share it on the page if you want me to, but there's a great um, connection between Tier Australia and Common Grace together, and they're going to have a lot more resources coming out to help us in that journey. And that's all for now for discussion questions for me. I'll come back to do a little prayer at the end. That was fabulous. Thank you so much, Natalie. Can we thank her again? Um, you ready? Okay. Question number one. We'll see how many of these we can, we can get through in maybe 10 minutes. Is it better to buy new, ex new expensive but ethically made sourced clothes or secondhand clothes from anywhere? Peter Mark. <laughs> Dial a friend. Um, did you, do we want these guys to join the stage or do we want just to call out from where they are or...? Well, they didn't say, they didn't specify. Peter, did you, did you want to come and, and, yeah. and join us? Do you have us? an answer? I, I just can't afford nice clothes, so I just do second-hand stuff. But. Um, I've bought a lot of second-hand clothes. That's what I did for a lot of years um, because I was 16 and didn't have a job. Um, but I now work in a shop that sells um, exclusively ethical clothes. And a lot of people are choosing to buy an ethical piece of clothing, example being a Patagonia t-shirt, because by wearing a Patagonia t-shirt, you're actually representing a brand that represents the ethics that you also believe in. So it's furthering on a positive a business that's making a positive change, whilst also not harming anyone or the environment, whilst production. Yeah, and the other thing I'd add, thank you so much, Grace. This is good. It's going to take a village. Um, is the recycle. It's no use to recycle if we're not going to buy products that are recycled. So that's what, like, just in terms of buying products that are made from recycled products is sometimes more expensive. But it's essential to create a market 
for recycled things. But op shopping is really fun. If you need bulk, if you just love clothes and you want to just, yeah. How do we respectfully and humbly balance sustainability with the reality that our city and region was built largely on and profited, profited from the coal industry? I honestly, I think, how do we humbly do it? Marcus? Mark, do you have an answer? People are sick of my voice. I think what we have to do is consider everybody that's involved. So that's considering the people that work in those industries and will continue to. And I think it's also about, and probably short, medium and long term views. So the short term is thinking about those people in their current roles. The medium term is looking at transitioning. There's gonna be, there already is now, but there's a crossover between renewables going up and coal and other fossil fuels going down. So it's, it's that medium term is really looking at transitioning those skilled workers and that skilled labour force in a respectful way into other roles which are going to be more prominent in the future. And then the long-term vision is that, is that future of purely um, sourcing energy from renewable sources. Okay, this is an interesting one. How do we help the elderly understand that this is important? And I suppose that this is sustainability or stewardship. I, I mean, there's obviously an assumption in the question that they, that they don't yeah. understand that it's important. The elderly. Mm. I'm thinking aged care, but then I'm like, I don't know where. The, does anyone who asks this question want to give more context? No? Yeah. <laughs> no I mean, I, I guess if you're talking about like, okay, boomer, or are we talking about elderly? <laughs> what are we talking about? I've been called okay, boomer lately. It's a bit scary. So I think... The important thing is that our grandparents or your, maybe your great-grandparents of generation you are, they have an experience of eating, they probably have an experience of growing up in that kind of victory garden, um, more eating more fruit and veg, uh, less packaged food. So it's, it's o we're only kind of a century away, which is two or three generations from that experience. So my grandmother grew up in the Depression, and she saved everything and bought anything that was on sale, whether you needed it or not. So I'd come over and she'd have like 100 purses, like, in case you want a purse, I've got one. It didn't work well with an eco mindset, like it wasn't eco at all. But she did it because as a little girl, she didn't have much. And so there's a Depression mentality. But if we can tap into that, um, when you were little, we did think there were good things about how life was. There was probably more health, less obesity, less preventable diseases. In the last 30 years, actually 20 years, the, 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 what people are dying of has shifted so much into the preventable disease, heart disease, and those kind of things are related absolutely to diet and exercise. So I find that um, you know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine to go down. What is that person passionate about and what are their problems? If ultimately no one's gonna change their mind unless they see a problem. So we can't sell a solution unless there's identified problem. So most of the time, caring about it comes through either seeing a documentary where you suddenly realize like the existential crisis of your children or grandchildren not having the planet and the good goodness that you have, or it's like a health crisis, or it's, um, or it's the bushfires or something where you realize how tenuous our uh, privileged existence is. Does that help? I'm just rambling. Yeah, no, no that's good. Um, this one is interesting. What is the gestation period of a mountain goat and why is it important? <laughs> 
And they voted for it. I don't know. Ask God. I think it's in Job, <laughs> like, Job. 32 or something. Um, okay, Job. so outside of individual efforts at sustainability, what do you think are worthwhile ways to collectively or politically engage in sustainable practices? The three biggest areas that society can... Um, the three biggest areas that society affects our planet are diet, transport and buildings. So diet is really looking at um, the resources involved in growing our food. Transport is looking at how we move around our country, our, our planet. And buildings is really looking at both materials used in building in, in the construction industry overall, and then also how we behave within those buildings. So looking at um, heating and cooling, all that sort of stuff. So they're the three big things to focus on. I think I might have just missed the point of the question, but... Um, well, I guess they're, they're asking about collective and political ways to engage in sustainability yeah. rather than individual. Yeah, well, I guess in all of those, it's, it's not just about... So diet, transport and buildings, that's not just about at home. That's in your workplaces, that's in your um, so, social settings, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that's probably... Um, you know, those, those three areas work on an individual and family level and also in a larger context as well. Politically, I might give that to you, yeah. I was just going to say that, like, one of the things I really love about Micah and Matt Jarvis is, um, and I've heard this from multiple people, is um, the senators and the prime minister and the leaders in parliament, they said to people in Micah, no one ever comes here to advocate for the poor that aren't in Australia. No one. And why does Micah do that? Because, they believe, because Micah believes that we are called to love our neighbor and our neighbor is neither, our, it's our next door neighbor as well as our neighbor across the ocean. So how can we represent building, transport, and diet, how can we do that in our local, state, and national government? It's a real big kind of echoey thing. But um, so I hope, yeah, I mean, that's going to be, I'm not, I'm going to evade, like, avoid the main question, but advocacy, writing a letter, finding out the policies and voting within being informed about the way you vote as well. Is that, is mm, that and joining your local sustain sorry, ministry, I mean. hand up, but I don't know if you're... Yes. Another one. Now this sounds facetious, but I think it's a, there's a serious question in there, which is, are we supposed to actually see and appreciate polar bears if the plane I take to travel to Antarctica is one of the biggest contributors to well, their extinction? very short uh, snippet we saw in 2040, we saw that agonising struggle he's having as he's travelling across the world in order to make a documentary about 2040. So that is a struggle we live with, just like we jump on the journey of sustainability knowing we never arrive, but we keep on making choices against materialism that's telling us to do something, no, make a sustainable choice. Against our taste preferences, no, I need to make a sustainable choice. And we live with the complexity of that. In many ways, like faith is married to doubt. Yeah, I think that's a good note to finish on and, and that, that's going to sort of uh, encourage us to go along and actually watch that film um, on the 19th. So can we um, thank the Sustain team, thank Natalie once again. Oh yeah, yeah, we want to finish with a prayer, um, but I should just say that, you know, afterwards we, we can't really encourage you to, to sort of stand around and mingle. Um, if you want to chat, maybe just sit and chat um, or leave. <laughs>
because it's already nine. Um, but Natalie actually wants to finish with a, um, a, a prayer, which she will tell you about. It's, it's actually at the end of her slideshow, Ian. Awesome. Did, do you want to stay where yeah. you are and yeah. tell us about it? So, do we want people to stand? Or? Yep, we will in a sec. But just hold on, let me just tell you a little bit about it. Stand if you're a lifer. <laughs> green for life, life for green. Green, anyway. Yeah, so this pope is the bomb. Like, of all the popes in recent history, this is my favorite pope. And I'm not Catholic, but he's got some good stuff. And he just came out in 2015 with his encyclical letter, and it's amazing. But this prayer is in it, and I just wanted to end with prayer because we can pray our little prayers, but when we pray in unison together out loud, standing up, um, it's, it's a release, and it's powerful, and we give... God. So would you all stand and we'll say this together. It's much better in person than on Zoom. We try and pray together on Zoom. It doesn't really work at all. Okay. All-powerful God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and forgotten of this earth, so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives, that we may protect the world and not prey upon it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the earth, the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey toward you. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us as we pray in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. Amen.